This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. a.k.a. Yvonne Raphael, or the other way around, perhaps. Uh, a beautiful track there, Riddick. He'll be chatting with us real soon, along with the very talented Harder Tracks, Alex Dubois. They'll be both chatting with me shortly on the show today. Great show. We also have Noah Reisman from Australian Catholic University. He has released a book called Serving in Silence that documents the experiences and issues for LGBTIQ military personnel here in Australia. And at 4.40, I'll be joined by veteran LGBTIQ 
LGBTIQ human rights activist Janet Jukes talking about our rights and advocacy issues in the current political climate. But I am joined in the studio by Alex Dubois and Yoan Yoan Pajera. Welcome to you both. Hello, thanks for having us. It's a great pleasure. Yoan, let's start with you. That is a beautiful track, Riddick. Thank you. It's Riddick Ridiculous. Really? It doesn't sound ridiculous. (laughs) That's how I felt ridiculous writing that song. Did you really? I thought it was about like a really full-on emotional connection that you perhaps totally. had with a sexual partner. Totally, totally. It's um, yeah, it is a bit of that. It's a bit of like the fine line with lust and love, and how um, yeah, that fine line is a little bit ridiculous or makes you feel a bit ridiculous sometimes. Can you tell us the story about maybe not name the person, but just tell us a story <laughs> about that particular emotional connection? It, it was just like early days of a newfound connection with a long-lasting boyfriend of mine, ex-boyfriend of mine. And, yeah, it was just the dealing with the first, I guess, couple of weeks of knowing somebody and having these instant really full-on emotions and not really knowing. You know, it's just a bit confusing when those feelings are a bit strong like that sometimes. You feel a bit crazy. Absolutely. And um, it's a bit like, you know, walking in the wind, you know, with Melbourne's changeable weather. Just those... (laughs) Just the chemical reaction to lust and love and all the other emotional stuff. And going for it, totally. (laughs) So, Alex, harder tracks. (sighs) Hello. I'm just overwhelmed by the imagery and the (laughs) beautiful kind of, you know, techno meets spirituality sound of your music. What's been happening with harder tracks? I know you've got a new track to play for us in a little while, but what's been going on? I guess, um, well, thank you, first of all. With Harder Tracks, I've decided to release, I released an EP yesterday called Cut Holes and Sinkum, which is, for me, it's an instrumental collection of songs. Like there, yeah, there are seven songs on the EP, and it's just an exploration in, I guess, texture and chance, a little bit of, um, a little bit of uh, irrationality, a little bit of um, trip-hop beats, kind of, uh, it's, it's not too calculated, it's a little bit up to randomization as well. So I've related the EP, Cut Holes and Sync Them, back to my own personal kind of state of mind and emotional well-being to Operation Chase, which is, uh, we spoke about it last time when I was here, an operation carried out by the US Defence Force in the late 60s to the 70s, which saw disposal of munitions, both uh, weapons, but also chemical weapons, into the Atlantic Ocean. And that was something that really kind of resonated with me in the sense of kind of disposing of unwanted feelings of insecurity, anxiety, self-doubt. So I actually released a couple of these songs a little while ago, and I realised there was a common thread between all of them, and I decided to consolidate them and make them into one body of work, um, which kind of, yeah, is cut holes and sink them. Fantastic. Now, both of you have very kind of diverse and striking images and you're not afraid to do some gender bending. You're not afraid to explore gender diversity. Tell us how important matching image is with your particular sound at any given point. Yvonne, Yoan, let's start with you. Yeah, uh, I really hope that it's not that important because I feel like sometimes my looks definitely don't match the sound that's coming out. Yeah, I think it's just another way of expressing yourself for me. So it doesn't necessarily always match, yeah, the songs or the sound that comes out. It's more depending on how I'm feeling at the time. or It is something I'm trying to focus a bit more on, though, to have a bit more of an align in terms of looks and sound. Mm-hmm. Alex, you've got a design background, graphics, and it really shows with your, with your looks. Uh, how important is matching image and sound for you? Well, I, for me, there is a level of importance to it. I do agree with Ewan. I, I like the idea that I will be able to play a show and not, 
you don't have to have the image kind of Stop match. Copying me, shit. <laughs> not have to match. Um, not have to match the music. But obviously, like it is, it is an extension of myself. It is a um, performative, you know, performative nature. And I find it's um, the importance in it. I suppose is encapsulating the visuals with the sound and the person. It's just, a, it's just a big amalgamation of everything. If I can express myself, I guess, further through that, um, I think you know why not. And also, it's in a way for me, it's a little bit of a it's a bit of a test. It's um, it's not so much a mask, but it's a um, it's a, and it's not so much a uniform because no one's telling me to wear it. But it's a um, yeah, it's a way to kind of actualize um, you know my songs, my emotions, and um, yeah, just take it one step in that direction. Because you're both not just sound artists, you're also performance artists as mm-hmm. well. Maybe both of you just tell us how would you describe your looks on stage? Like is oh, there <laughs> messy <laughs> By the end of it, what time am I playing? Messy time <laughs> <laughs> Beginning Definitely. of the night short. Sure. Like um <laughs> my looks I guess to date, uh I guess I mean it's it's definitely got a femme aesthetic to it. Um I wouldn't a lot of people have come up to me and they say, you know, what's your drag name or like, is this, do you consider this drag? And for me, I don't consider what I do um, when I, you know, put on a dress and I put on the extensions and the makeup. I don't consider that drag. I don't it's consider- art, isn't it? It's, mm. it's, it's making not just political statements, but identity yeah, statements. Totally. Yeah, no, completely. Yes. Yeah. Totally, totally. How about you, Jan? Uh, me, um... Oh my god! What was the question? So sorry. Just in terms Just of the image <laughs> and and like, how would you describe image, yeah. your images? I think. It tends to be like a funny juxtaposition with like my music being so slow and moody and soft. I like to maybe try and be more uncomfortable, like in terms really? of my looks. You like, look good. <laughs> you look <laughs> guilty. Um, yeah, just like jock straps and my bum cheeks coming out and some big latex heels. Just, yeah, the fine line of, like, sex appeal and awkward. <laughs> and also gender bending. And there's an yeah, 80s totally influence in your look as well. Thank mm. you. Totally take that at the moment. <laughs> can we expect to see both of you on stage together? And can we also expect to see you making a recording together? <laughs> it's been in the talks. For ages, yeah, actually. it's been in the talks for ages. The um, collaboration. We actually wanted to present something today, and um, yes, I there was a cover. There you was. Were going to do. Yeah, look, I, look, I, 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 time, <laughs> to be completely I don't honest. <laughs> I just have to ask though, what track were you thinking of doing? Well, we tossed up between a few. Mm-hmm. Um, I Do think tell. We settled. What did we? It was Bonnevere and Lord because we wanted Lord. To yeah, get we in wanted contact with us. <laughs> the drunk talk we were talking about, and that's why we. We chose did drink quite a bit. We, we we wanted to do tennis court or Holocene. I was going to ask tennis court. As soon as I heard Lord, yeah. I thought I bet you tennis court. Yeah, totally. Yeah, <laughs> we started, and it really worked with the harmonies and just the pace of it. And I just we both really admired Lord, so we just thought that was something that we could do. Mm. Yeah, but we yeah. It started well, and then we just. Being old friends got carried away. Like, <laughs> How long have you known each other for? Like a week. <laughs> <laughs> it would take. I don't know. Yeah. Um, how long has it been? So like we met through years? three years. I met you when I first moved here because I had. And a... you were dating. Yeah, yep. you were dating <laughs> that person. Um, yeah, no, it's been about three years. It's been about three years. Okay, right. So how come we've been waiting so long to see you on stage together? When can we see you on stage, and what do you think that's going to entail? Not too sure as of yet. It's definitely gonna. It's gonna come. I guess you'll be covering the Lord on stage, won't you? I know we have to. We've said it. (laughs) Yeah, just because you said it doesn't mean (laughs) you meant it. (laughs) No, definitely. I think. um, Yeah, we're definitely gonna aim for um, a collaboration. I think Ewan's got a trip planned next year, so we're gonna try to get it in before then. Where are you going? I'm gonna try and do a month and a half in Berlin uh, and Europe. So Berlin, London, 
Paris to see if I can get a few gigs at some of the Great. clubs there. Wow. It would be interesting actually to see how they react to, you know, queer Australian music and where that's at in terms of what's happening in Berlin. I'm sure it'd be like minus, they'd be doing it times 10 there already, I assume. <laughs> now look, can I ask you, what would you do if Lord actually contacted you and said, I love your track, thanks for the email, thanks for sending me that, you know, I want to do something with you guys, what would you do? <laughs> We'd probably take her out for a drink, I reckon. Yeah, yeah. you sound like you're both do pretty fun with a few drinks. <laughs> <laughs> do, some, do some songwriting with Lord over a few drinks. <laughs> oh, that'd be, be kind of cute, isn't it? <laughs> okay, so tell us about some of the influences in your music. You mentioned the 80s. Um, yeah, 80s. Who in particular? Is Yazoo the 80s? Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Love, love, love Yazoo. Yeah. To bits. So it's the electronic sound. That's interesting because I would have expected mm. you to say Yazoo, <laughs> Alex. Well, Alex is totally something like the sounds that Alex produces is 120% something that I aim to, you know, the direction that I aim to go for rather than... It's very slick. Ballads. So slick. Very polished. Thank always, you. always. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, my influences are pretty varied. PJ Harvey, even though it doesn't... Uh, come across in the music is a really, really strong influence for me, uh, as well as Cat Power and Brant Bjork and the Bros. And that, I guess, on the opposite end of the spectrum is with highly kind of produced and, I guess, technical, uh, you know, artists like Arca, um, really experimental sounds, um, Bjork. Yeah, so I'm trying to kind of find a fusion um, between the two, uh, which, you know, hasn't actually happened at this point because I'm still learning. I haven't been doing music for that long. So, yeah, it's it's a fun process, but I just, with the next release that I do, which I'm already kind of thinking about now, I want it to be a lot more conversational, um, not highly political, but um, definitely undertones of it. I want to take from Peter Harvey's book and just, yeah, kind of just let the words speak from the self and the pace, the pace of the song and the kind of constant, um, you know, the constant strumming or the beat or whatever it may be, um, just to create kind of like a rhythm that is really in line with, you know, what I'm saying. Instead of... Instead of being too cluttered, I suppose, with lots of textures and sounds and all that kind of stuff, I want to strip it back a little bit more. Um, take a page from Ewan's book, and which is why I think we would be a great duo. Would you know? Would collaborate really well together, just because we bring something completely different to the table, and it'd be a nice Big marriage. Contrast, yeah. yeah. Do you feel like you're at the cutting edge? I mean, the '80s and the '90s. You know, well, in the '90s, gay artists really didn't rock. They really didn't do grunge. <laughs> You know, they didn't do diverse kind of music that had a mainstream kind of, you know, outlet. And I think, you know, being able to have your own label and home record and just the mm. increases in technology have really helped yeah. queer artists in particular get their own kind of, you know, totally. stuff yeah. stuff out there. So you must feel like it's a pretty exciting time to be a young queer Talk about musician. it all the time, actually, hey. <laughs> yeah. Just how this is definitely the moment or the time for the, you know, the queer movement in terms of all the arts, music, mm. performance visual arts mm. yeah definitely i think more than ever now is the time yeah. or maybe that's just the 23 year old speaking i'm mm. got 24 it's interesting, isn't it? Because in the in the eighties, you know, even some of the big kind of you know gender bending acts like mm. you know Boy George couldn't really be out. He'd say, "Oh, look, I'm bisexual." Yeah, or, yeah, sure. You know, he was having an affair having an affair with John Moss, the drummer in Culture Club, and that was in the oh, closet. Wow. Um, Freddie Mercury, you mm. know, was in the closet for for a long, long time. So we had all these great artists. But the industry didn't embrace their sexuality, yeah. so it was either hidden or, mm. or you know, bearded over in, in some ways. You must feel pretty good that you don't necessarily have to deal with the industry Completely. because of your independence. Yeah. How mm-hmm. important is your independence to you? It's it's you paramount. Must. It's it's yeah, it's very important. I do obviously I do everything on my own um, to this point, and I think yeah, going back to you know being able to have that home recording studio and not actually having to you know outsource and 
you know, if you don't have the funds, which, you know, neither of us really do to record mm-hmm. properly or to, you know, get someone to mix and master for you, um, it's just, it's really liberating. I love the... I love the process and I love the fact that uh, the autonomy and the fact that, you know, you've got complete creative control over it. Totally. You don't need to Important. spend money to, you know, to express yourself and to just kind of learn along the way. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a great time. It's a great yeah, time. Make do with what you have and there's so much to be done, actually. Yeah. Once you put your head So to much it. to say as well. Yeah. yeah. All righty. Well, we've got a beautiful track of yours to play now, Thank you. Alex. It's called CCTV. Tell us a little bit about this track. Not necessarily why it's called CCTV, but just sure. just the track. Tell us about it. Um, so CCTV was one of those tracks that I mentioned before that I recorded a little while ago. Um, and I kind of just uploaded for a little bit just because I wanted to get my name out there. And I just thought, because, yeah, I wanted people to, I guess, to hear something before I released anything, you know. But CCTV is, I guess, it's called CCTV um, because I didn't, I couldn't find a title for the name, and so I thought if I just came up with that acronym, I could maybe work around it and get something kind of fun around it. But then, in the context of cut holes and sync them, CCTV kind of relates to the idea of always being kind of monitored, always being watched, always kind of being, um, you know, examined, and never always, you know, your your tracks are always covered, um, so to speak. I tend to. I tend to get lost a lot. I tend to go on my own little adventures. Um, and so I kind of like the absence of, you know, people knowing where I'm at and what I'm doing. So that's mm-hmm. that's kind of where I was inspired by. Fantastic. Well, Alex Dubois. Merci. Hard tracks. <laughs> and uh, you're on Pajera, uh, Yvonne Raphael. Thank you so much for chatting with us. Thank, Thank you. you for your beautiful Thank you for music. Us. Much it's so a appreciated. great pleasure anytime. Now, we're going to play Harder Tracks track CCTV. And here it is. Running your face on 3CR. Thank you. Bye.
wonderful music there of Harder Track, CCTV. It is 21 after 4. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Well, Noah Reisman is a lecturer in American and Australian history at Australian Catholic University. And he's the co-author of a book called Serving in Silence, which is about LGBTIQ servicemen and women in the army and armed services here in Australia. And he joins me on the line. The book's going to be launched tonight, Hairs and Hyenas. Welcome, Noah. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a great pleasure. You must be excited about tonight's launch. Oh, I've been so flat out the last few weeks, it crept up on me. Really? (laughs) Yeah, it did. It crept up on me, but that's good. That means I'll have reason to relax and celebrate tonight. So tell us about the book and how far back does it go in terms of Australia's queer service men and women? This is a, one of the outputs from a project that I've been coordinating the last four years on the history of LGBTI service in Australia. We've been focusing primarily on the post-Second World War era. And what we've done in this book is, is we've taken, of the 130 interviews that we've done with current and ex-service personnel, we've taken 14 particular stories that in many ways are indicative of what the past policies and procedures and most importantly lived experiences were of LGBTI defense members. And essentially through these 14 people's life stories and their experiences in defense, we chart the history of how those experiences and the policies have changed since the end of the Second World War till today. What's the most striking thing about how those policies have changed? I imagine well, change has been pretty slow over some decades. It was. Well, it's funny because it, what we found was in many ways the the policies and the experiences went through sort of three phases. So we divide the book into these three phases. The first phase is from the end of the Second World War until 1973. And during that period, it's a bit of a mix for men If they were discreet, in many ways there was quite a bit of a blind eye turned and there was tolerance. That's not to say that gays were necessarily welcomed in defense, but it's to say that men could actually get away with it if they were discreet and it was easy not to get caught. With women during that era, it was quite different. There was regularly policing of women's sexuality and bodies, trying to hunt for women suspected of being lesbians or bisexual. And what happens is from 1974, those practices that had been that had been quite common with women and, and had happened with men as well, just not to the same extreme, were then widened and taken across the defense force. So you've got this period from 1974 to 1992 where both men and women, they have to be secretive. They, if they're caught, they're kicked out. They go through these incredibly harrowing investigations and interrogations. And that ban on LGB people serving is lifted at the end of 1992. And then the final phase from 1992 till now I think even that, I'm getting even more technical here, can be sort of divided into a sort of early period until about 2005 where it's tolerance. So you've got a mix where some people have a relatively okay time, are fine being openly gay or lesbian, other people bullying, taunting, harassment, abuse. So you've got variations depending where they served, their age, their rank, and again, gender comes into this. Um, Women during that period tend to have it a bit better than men. And then since about 2005, the ADF has really changed its tune where it's not just been merely tolerating the presence of gay and lesbian people, but they've actually gone out of their way to try and promote inclusion. So the experiences since then are much better. And of course, the other milestone is that in 2010, the ban on transgender people is lifted. So since 2010, you've also had trans people who can serve openly and transition in defense. 
it's been well documented that many people returning from war have incredible trauma, and I'm thinking particular Vietnam and, of course, you know, Iraq Gulf Syndrome that's been very widely covered. I imagine that dealing with your sexuality in the armed forces in a climate of repression and, you know, retribution and suspicion means that dealing with that trauma is just so much harder. Does the book cover that at all? That's an interesting question. Um, that's something that, that's covered a little in the book in that we do talk about a few people who did have PTSD related to war service. But in their context, the sexuality doesn't necessarily intersect with that. That said, there is at least one gentleman we did interview who's not in this book who did suffer some serious PTSD from Vietnam around the same time that he was having um, problems confronting his own sexuality, and he did wind up going into a psych hospital, this is in the early 70s, almost suicided, and he did come out to a psychiatrist then in the in the hospital while he was still serving, and the psych was the one who actually recommended maybe he should discharge from defense. So, look, that does happen, it does intersect, but interestingly enough, most of the people we've interviewed either were not involved in combat, so wouldn't necessarily have that PTSD for those reasons, or in many ways, rightly or wrongly, were able to compartmentalize these aspects of their lives, mainly because they had to. They had to compartmentalize their sexuality as separate from their defense work, as separate from other parts of their lives. Does the book go into, you know, sexual relations between, say, you know, queer or gay identifying servicemen and perhaps, you know, men who are married and didn't traditionally, you know, identify as gay or bisexual but find themselves in sexual situations? Like, mm. did, does it kind of talk about that, that fluid, that fluidity? We certainly, we certainly touch on that. That's more so in the earlier stories. Oh, no, sorry, it's in one of the later stories, too. So, look, we certainly touch on that. Um, it's not necessarily the focus of the book. One thing that is more of a focus is when it comes to the stories of women is the relationships that lesbian women were forming with each other in defense. That absolutely is a central theme. One of the chapters follows two women who met in the Air Force, fell in love in the Air Force 50 years later are still together. So that aspect is in there. In terms of what you're talking about, of people who didn't necessarily identify as gay or bisexual, yes, again, it does come up. There's stories of a Navy man from the 1960s who talks about all sorts of sexual escapades he would have on the ship with other men. And there is a story from the 1990s, which is a bit more harrowing because it involves um, sexual assault and it involves uh, an actual nearly him being expelled from defense when a nominally straight man tried to seduce him and then he's the one who got blamed for it. Wow. Yeah. You're an associate professor at Australian Catholic University, specialise in Australian-American history. How would you compare the two nations' responses to LGBTIQ servicemen and women? Yeah, well, look, primarily I, I do Australian history. I have in some context done comparative history, primarily in the space of Indigenous. That said, I've looked a little at the American case for this because you just can't not in many ways. Um, there, until 1992, they're actually quite similar. So Australia's policy that it adopts in 1974, um, the way the ban that worked in Australia was any case of suspected homosexuality was to be investigated by the service police. They sometimes surveilled you. They sometimes followed you. They sometimes went into gay and lesbian bars. And eventually when they built a case, they'd call you in for an interview, which a better word might be interrogation, could go for hours on end, sometimes even days, and they'd try and get you to crack and then name names of others. Very similar to the policy adopted in the United States in 1980. And when you read Randy Schultz's book, Conduct Unbecoming, which is sort of the defining work on 
LGB history in this space and the U.S. military. It's it's striking the similarities. That said, I haven't found any documents showing a definitive link between the two countries, but the experiences are very similar. Where it all goes different is, of course, Australia lifts its ban in November of 1992 on LGB people serving. The United States adopts Don't Ask, Don't Tell in 1993. So there it goes on and on. But the other issue in the United States is it actually becomes a huge political issue through the Clinton era into the Obama era when it's finally lifted. In Australia, it never really became a political issue because it was dealt with before it could become a political issue. And I suppose the other parallel is transgender ban was lifted in Australia in 2010. That might sound recent, but it still hasn't been lifted in the United States. So until 92, a lot of parallels, a lot of similars, but then they go on different paths. To what extent were there people who identify perhaps as trans are actually serving in the military but actually had to repress their their true gender identity? That is a fantastic question. So, look, it's very hard to give you figures, statistics, etc. What I can tell you is it's far more common than your average Joe Schmo might think. There was a study done in the United States in 1988 that found, and this is, you know, 30 years ago, a study by a psychiatrist found that trans people were actually disproportionately more likely to enlist in an armed forces than not. The reason being, if you were a pre-transition uh, trans female, let's say, and you know, you're trying to repress your gender identity, try to prove your masculinity, joining a defense force is actually a common place to do that. And they also found cases of suicidal ideation, often this idea that a trans person would rather die in battle than have to face up to their authentic gender and transition. That it was a study done in the 1980s, and it still holds true today. So that would apply to the Australian Defence Force as well. And the flip side for trans men is if you're a pre-transition trans man, what's a place where someone who at the time is still identifying as female can go and exhibit masculine behaviours and it be sort of socially acceptable? Defence. So, look, again, can't give you numbers, still a very small percentage, but that said, higher than one might expect for the very reason that the military is such a gendered institution. What does the book actually tell us about uh, how the military kind of hierarchy, the military brass, has reacted to the inclusion of gender-diverse people in Australia's military? Again, we've got to look at different eras. If we want to talk present, they're certainly talking a good talk, and I give them credit to that. If you look at, especially in the last 10 years, even more recently, they've been, you know, allowed defense members to march in uniform at Mardi Gras. They've supported initiatives like Wear Purple Day. They've been much, they changed the rules on de facto recognition in 2005. So in the last 10 or so years, they've been much better. What we don't get into in the book, and I will say here, and I will probably take it up in future publications, I think defense has plateaued in this space, and that's a very worrying sign. And the main reason they've plateaued is because they have been under assault from News Corp and from conservative media, uh, sorry, conservative politicians who have actually been attacking defense's LGBTI inclusion agenda. What defense has argued is having an inclusive environment and encouraging people to be the authentic selves, LGBTI, but also women, indigenous, non-English speaking backgrounds, that is good for defense. It improves our capabilities because you're getting more diverse perspectives and and it can break away from groupthink. But these assaults that, that the conservative media has been doing, where they've been saying, no, it's social engineering, blah, 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 defense has actually been going quiet in this space. 
And partly that's under political pressure. Partly it's because they don't like bad press. And I find that worrying. It's not to say that they're fully backing away. It's to say they're going quiet. And that, to me, says they've plateaued and I worry for the future. What impact has Donald Trump's reaction to trans military personnel had on the Australian counterparts? I mean, Trump kind of off the cuff without kind of, you know, getting advice from his advisors, said there was going to be a ban of trans people mm. in the US military, and that's kind of, you know, flip-flopped. <laughs> How's that influenced Australia, do you think? That's a great question as well. Look, the good news is it hasn't, but this is where what I was just talking about a moment ago, I think, mm. comes into play. So it hasn't changed Australia's policy. That was a great opportunity when we could have had people in, whether it be the defence minister at the time would have been Maurice Payne, or uh, well, I think it was Maurice Payne then. Yeah, yeah. I, I, we'll, we'll just go with that. Um, that the defense minister and or the ADF, the chief of the defense force, could have come out with a strong assertion of defending trans people's service. That's what the UK did. Australia didn't say anything. Now, look, that's whether that's good or bad is debatable because, I mean, but the point is, I think that was a missed opportunity to come out and reaffirm. But that said, Australia hasn't backed away on it either. What's the most powerful story in the book from your perspective? What was the story that moved you the most? Look, co-authors might disagree. For me, it was the story of Mark, which was the reason I insisted on putting it in the book. Um, Mark's the only person in the book who wanted to be anonymous, so we did not include his surname. And Mark's story, to me, was quite moving for because... A lot more to do with his background besides defense. He had an incredibly troubled childhood where he was subject to some horrific child sexual abuse. And what's interesting is for him, joining defense was very much an escape from that. But in defense, he was caught and he was kicked out and it traumatized him in, to the point that he you know, considered suicide. And he did rebuild his life afterwards, but just when you hear the, the sort of entire life trajectory of Mark and how defense fits into that, and it was something taken away from him, this employment opportunity, this change of his life, it, it's pretty emotional the way he tells it and the way we've written it up. So I guess the book really talks about the huge, not just physical and time commitment in joining the services, but the emotional connection and commitment as well, and the terrible feelings of rejection people must experience if they are kicked out, if they are dishonorably discharged. That is a huge theme, and whether they were dishonorably or honorably, because um, the policy said if you were caught, you'd give the option of requesting your own discharge, um, which would be honorable, and the vast majority took that option, but let's be, I mean, they're compelled to discharge, it's the same being kicked out. Absolutely, that comes across in the stories of people who were kicked out. The emotion is very raw in the stories of people even who weren't kicked out or even more recently serving with some of the hardship they went through, but also some of the good stories. I don't want to make it sound like it's all negative. There were some great stories in there as well. There's a lot of emotion. There's a lot of pride in what they've done, um, what some of them are still doing in defense. And and that, well, in my humble opinion as the author, or one of the three authors, that all comes across pretty strongly in the book. So the book's called Serving in Silence. It's being launched tonight, 6.30, at Hares and Hyenas. It's a collaboration between yourself and two other authors. Tell us about them. Uh, well, Charlene Robinson um, is a historian who, until recently, was at Macquarie University. Now she is the head of the oral history unit at the National Library of Australia. And look, Charlene, uh, she also, look, she was, um, she specializes especially in the history of women and lesbians. So Charlene very much in this project focused especially on the women's stories. And Graham Willett is the, until recently, president of the Australian Lesbian and Gay Archives. He's still on their, their committee. And Graham has been one of the first historians of LGBTI 
people issues in Australia. And so that's why he was a great addition to the project. Well, Noah, it's an awesome book. You must be very proud of yourself. Thank you so much <laughs> for joining us. We're working on the sequel now. Really? Because, well, we always intended to do two books because this one is very biographical in its approach and taking 14 stories. There's so much more to say, which isn't necessarily biography-based. So working on another book, which will be more a narrative, if you will, of tracing this history. There'll still be stories interweaved, but whereas this one, the stories are at the center, this other book, it'll be more of a chronology at the center. Awesome stuff. Noah Reisman, thanks so much for joining us today on 3CR, and good luck with the launch. 6.30, Hares and Hyenas, Serving in Silence. Noah Reisman there, the co-author of Serving in Silence. It is 22 minutes to five. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. And here's PJ Harvey, The Glorious Land.
PJ Harvey there, the glorious land. It's 19 to 5. You're on In Your Face on 3CR. With James, I am joined by the very seasoned and experienced LGBTIQ activist, rights advocate, Janet Jukes. Welcome back to 3CR. It's been 20 years since I've interviewed you. 20 years. 20 oh, years. That's way too long between drinks, isn't it? It really is. <laughs> it's been a very, very busy 20 years for LGBTIQ activism. And this week's been busy with the leaked uh, report into Ruddick's religious freedom recommendations. And we've all been pretty shocked by talk of queer kids being thrown out of religious schools. What's your reaction to the, to the leaked report? Well, I think, you know, um, I mean, on one level, it's very confusing, isn't it? Because we hear this and we hear that and we're not quite really sure what's in it. So I, I guess I'd join the Human Rights Law Centre in saying we need to see the report, you know, time for it to actually be available publicly. But also, I think, you know, you'd be a bit of a fool if you didn't have an idea of what might be in there, given um, the fact that it was a response to the marriage equality debate this time last year. And uh, it was really a concession, I think, to some of those elements in the Liberal Party that such a such an inquiry would happen, and that Philip Ruddock would lead it up. So, you know, no surprises probably in the in the leaked um, leaked um, you know statements that they think are in there. Do you think it helps <clears throat> the LGBTIQ cause that actually has been leaked a couple of weeks out from the Wentworth by election? And do you think that's perhaps stymied the right wing rump of the coalition, and it's meant that the prime minister's had to hose it down a bit to not frighten the horses? And in actual fact, that could well assist us to have it buried. Or do you think that we're just being lulled into a false sense of security, and it's going to beef up after Wentworth? I I think that I think that probably the reason that it has been leaked has been a response to a polit- the political um, climate at the moment and the by election and so on and so forth. In terms of uh, you know what does that mean for us? It, you know the, I think it's exposed the divisions that exist in our community and particularly in that party. And <clears throat> excuse me. And I think it probably means that we need to you know it's a it's a wake up call for us. We need to be we need to be organised. We need to be informed. And we need to be ready because um, there are people who think this and some of them are they are in Parliament. You recently went along to the Victorian Gay and Lesbian Rights Lobby's Candidates Forum mm. where, you know, the, the, the queer community was being courted by candidates for the state election. What were the standout policies and by whom? I just want to say it's so wonderful that those forums still happen. I remember, you know, when mm. we set up the lobby, I don't know, 25 years ago or something like that, or 20, maybe not quite that long, we used to run those forums and they still happen. And I think they're really, really important, those sort of town hall um, meetings where we get a chance to ask some questions from some pollies. I think we used to call it put a polly on the barbie. I'm not sure that you get away with that these days. So, you know, all power to the Victorian Gay and Lesbian Rights Lobby to, who still, um, you know, entirely voluntarily um, pull those things together. And it was a great um, evening. The, I think the standout thing for me is that there's work. There's more work to do. You know, we've still got quite a lot of – we've got a lot of uh, – the law reform agenda is coming to an end. We've got – you know, we're really mopping up the law reform. There's still work to do and – um, and uh, Lee and Anna from the Human Rights Law Centre have been running around the country, you know, mopping up all of those areas of law that we need to continue to work, and there's quite a lot of them. But what we don't have is a funded community sector that's stable, uh, LGBTI community-controlled sector. So we don't have mental health services properly funded in a sustainable way. 
Um, where, you know, switchboard really runs on the smell of an oily rag. Thorn Harbour Health doesn't have the same level of resources that we really need to have in terms of our mental health supports, and we know that's a really big area of um, of need. There's a there's a whole lot of areas that we don't get recurrent, secure funding that we can build our community from, and and I think that's the big thing that came out in that in that forum. And it, you know, there was discussion around the Pride Centre and how the sustainability of the Pride Centre. But I think across the board, there was, you know, all of the parties acknowledged that we need to do more work there. Now we need to see their money. Exactly. Were there any funding commitments? Unfortunately, there were no commitments at all. And I guess it's too soon. You know, we're not quite in caretaker mode and we're not quite in election. I mean, it started, we're inching towards it and we're starting to see announcements. But all of the parties, the major parties, were very, very clear they weren't going to make any funding commitments or any election promises at all. But um, we'll, we'll wait in hope. Who were some of the candidates, the tenders? So they were Martin Foley, who's the Minister for Equality, and David Davis, who's the opposition um, counterpart. And then we had uh, Greens and and uh, the... Uh, the Reason Party? The Reason Party, who were, who were there as well. And then in the audience were some of the local local candidates for Paran and for the you know local areas. So how did the rights lobby assess the, I guess, not commitments, but, you know, like responses from the various political parties? Did they rank them in any way? Did they release a report saying this party's really good in this area, it's shithouse in another? Well, I'm not involved in the actual no. organisation of it, so <laughs> um, or even on the committee of the lobby. I'm, I'm a life member, but I'm not um, involved in the organisation of it anymore. But I understand that they've got a number of questions. There's a commit. There was an election platform or a policy document that was produced in conjunction with a whole lot of LGBTI community-controlled organisations, including Thorn Harbour Health and Switchboard and Human Rights Law Centre, and a whole lot of organisations got together and put the put the their policy positions together and um, that document was launched at that at that event and that will now be seeking some responses from each of the major parties and invite them to and I think the lobby's plan is to put out some statements assessing how well each of those parties will you know, go against those um, policy wish list. You mentioned funding gaps before. One of the biggest funding gaps, I think, is around gender diversity and trans right. community services. You mentioned mental health as well. I imagine there's yeah. a real kind of, you know, lack of mental health funding for trans and gender diverse people. And um, young people, of course. So, yeah. you know, even, even um, strategies to prevent bullying, you know, suicide prevention, really working with affirming young trans and gender diverse young people to be who they want to be in the world and be as be the best person or people that they can be. So I think um you know we need we need a lot more resources to run really good programs and and keep that community, you know, agenda happening. How did uh, David Davis, the coalition spokesperson at the candidates forum actually handle the issue? And really navigated in terms of safe schools and the coalition's policy to basically destroy it. <laughs> well, I think you know. I think it, it's it's a it's an evolving space, isn't it? Really, for the um, for the um, the opposition, and I think a bit like the federal um, Liberal Party, there are you know a number of different views. And I've got to say that I think David Davis is 
one of our friends in that community. Mm. And so he does speak from his heart in relation to supporting our community and he's shown that support uh, when he has been minister. That may not be the view of the whole of the government should it change and become a Liberal-led um, government. So, you know, I think that he sidestepped. But I think more interesting in that forum for me was the discussion around the attempts to move the remove the religious exemptions in the Equal Opportunity Act. And the, the government has put up has tried a number of times to remove religious exemptions, as have the Greens, and have been unsuccessful because it's been blocked in the upper house. Because Victoria is one of the states that's been mentioned this week, that's aren't right. we? You know that you know why do you need to make these changes to federal law when you've got states like Victoria that already have these exemptions for religious organisations? And they're really abhorrent. You know, the, the it's the, so at, currently in the Equal Opportunity Act, religious bodies can discriminate on the basis of sexuality and gender identity and they can and and that's lawful lawful discrimination they can be exempted from employing people or delivering goods and services and you know it's in the 21st century it's not acceptable and they and they have to be removed it's a policy position of one major party all of the major parties except the liberals I might just say quietly to remove those exemptions there's different disagreements between the greens and the labor party about how to do that but it is a policy position um, to do that and what we need is a government that um, that has the power in both the lower and the upper house to be able to remove those religious exemptions from the Equal opportunity act they've got to go because they meet that what they do is they stop people from feeling like they can engage with religious organisations or um, seek supports that are delivered through religious organisations. And when you've got most homelessness services, most child welfare services, most you know many hospitals, lots of aged care um, facilities run by uh, organisations that have their origins in uh, faith-based organisations, it's no longer acceptable um, that those exemptions are available to those organisations, even if they never use them, and many of them are pledging never to use them. Mm. They can. I guess the stumbling block and the difficulty for, for us having those exemptions removed is the state of the upper house here in Victoria and its coalition domination. In the, in the current parliament, that's what, it's, that's what, that's what stopped it. And so, you know, we, you needed, we need a decisive win for um, more, the more progressive side of government to, to remove those exemptions. But that's a, that has to remain a priority. And the um, pushback that we've seen since the marriage equality debate and, and the, fed, you know, the shenanigans federally this week make it even more stark, I think, that we, we need to stay very focused in Victoria and have those religious exemptions removed. Was there any talk at the Candidates Forum about hate crimes towards the LGBTI community? I, 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 don't, I don't, aside from the religious exemptions, and I mean, the, each of the candidates were really supportive, I think, generally. I mean, as you would expect, they wouldn't turn up unless they were generally supportive of the um, LGBT community. But the, each of the candidates, aside from the reason party, are, are mostly, you know, part of a party. So even the Greens are part of a party and they have to be taking a party position. So whilst you can have really, really supportive people sitting on the podium, sitting behind them is a party that takes a policy position. And we need to, as a community, really inform ourselves about each of those policy positions and um, and and cast our vote accordingly because there is a big difference. There's a big difference when it comes to our social issues around supporting trans and gender diverse and um, same-sex attracted young people in schools. There's a big difference when we're talking about whether or not um, religious exemptions are going to be removed so that people can't get sacked and everybody can access the services that they need. 
The Human Rights Law Centre recently released a report about about hate crimes Mm -hmm. in Victoria. Um, What were some of the key issues and recommendations in it? Well, I had a look at it because I knew you were going to ask me that question. So, <laughs> um, so I pulled it back out because I went to the launch, and it's like, I've just got to say, it's a really. I saw you tweet about it, actually. Yes, it's a really. I was really good to be at the um, launch, and the and the good thing about that is that it's there were there was a strong pre- um, presence of um, Victoria Police, and I've got to say, twenty years ago, we would never have no. had that back in the um, tasty days. But um, so there was a good um, presence of Victoria Police who were really, really supportive about how they could do better around responding to hate crime when it happened because we know during the marriage equality debate a number of people experienced, you know, sometimes really violent but also really disturbing examples of hate crime, whether it was, you know, vandalism or things getting um or graffiti, as we've recently graffiti, seen. Graffiti or, um, or, you know, posters being posted around the place which were just intimidating or with, or actually people being physically harmed and set upon. All of those things happen and happen, continue to happen. And uh, during that time, there were a lot of people who reported that they got a really inadequate response from the police. And, and I think the police have acknowledged that and they certainly acknowledged it at this launch. So that's a standout for me. I think that's great that that relationship's continuing and they're, that they're aware that, you know, we need to lift our lift our game so that people will report hate crime and that they'll be taken seriously and the harm that we know happens as a result of that hate crime will be taken seriously as well. So I guess in terms of election commitments or announcements during the campaign once the writs are issued in early November before the election, perhaps we're going to see a commitment around introducing hate crimes legislation from one of the major parties if they're elected or it's certainly a, it's a recommendation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so whether or not we'll actually see it, you know, James, your guess is as good as mine. But but certainly there's a it was a recommendation of the Human Rights Law Centre's report. And I, I think the other thing is, and there were lots of recommendations around community campaigns so that people understand hate crime, they understand the impact of hate crime. There's recommendations around improving our data. There's recommendations around police lifting their game. And um, and I think the police were very open to those recommendations. So there's a whole swag of recommendations, but it's a report worth reading for those who are interested in this issue. Janet Dukes, we're out of time. I could talk for a lot longer. Thank you so much for joining us today on 3CR. And let's not wait 20 years until we do our next interview. Oh, a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> Talking to Janet Dukes a long time and a uh, very prominent activist and advocate for the LGBTIQ community. I am out of here. Jacob is up next with the Friday Rave. Taking us out is Lisa Stansfield with everything. And I'll catch you next week on 3CR.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.